the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, seeing that the snowpocalypse is upon us, and there are few of us here, and I wasn't particularly happy with where I got with Daniel 7 this week anyways. I will take another week to work on Daniel chapter 7 and instead um, give some of my thoughts on the lessons for this third Sunday in Lent. So, I'm going to say, begin by imagining being one of Pharaoh's court magicians when Moses came with that message from the Lord, the God of Israel, demanding, let my people go. Imagine being one of the, the, the magicians in Pharaoh's court. And Pharaoh laughed. This Lord, this God of Israel, he's no match for, for our gods. Powerful gods did not let their people become slaves. And everybody knew that the gods of Egypt were the greatest and most powerful gods in the world. This Lord, this, this Yahweh, this God of a poor and subjugated people, this God hiding unknown in the desert for hundreds of years, who was he to be sending a prophet to mighty Pharaoh and making demands? Pharaoh laughed, we're told. And the whole court, including the magicians, laughed with Pharaoh. Stupid Moses. He could have had everything. He was born of the Hebrews, but he was chosen by a daughter of Pharaoh and raised in the royal courts. The gods of Egypt had shown Moses favor. But what a fool. He gave it all up hiding in the desert like an outlaw. He'd met that pathetic God of his own people and chosen him over the gods who had shown him such favor, over the most powerful gods on earth. And then to come to Pharaoh, making demands and promising these disasters and calamities, everybody in that court laughed at Moses. Oh, look! He could turn his brother's staff into a snake. Neat trick. But so could they. Pharaoh had sent Moses packing. And then that first plague, the Nile turned to blood just as Moses had promised. They had not expected that. But they could do it too. Of course, the real trick was turning it back into water. Maybe they could do that, maybe they couldn't, but thankfully Pharaoh hadn't asked them to do that part. And then came the frogs. Everywhere, in the streets and in their houses, in their beds, in their ovens, in their toilets. This God of Israel had power, but it wasn't anything they couldn't do themselves. And do it they did. And so Pharaoh nodded smugly at them as they caused frogs to come up from the Nile, just like Moses had. And they nodded back and they smiled, but they had to admit that they were feeling a little bit nervous about all of this. And then that third plague, Aaron struck the dust of the earth with his staff and it turned into gnats and gnats and more gnats. And the gnats covered everything. And Pharaoh looked to his musicians and, and nervously they took their staffs and they struck the ground and nothing happened. 
They knew. He knew. Whatever Pharaoh might claim about being Lord of the earth, his power and the power of his magicians and his gods was limited. The Nile was the source of Egypt's life, and over the Nile, the gods of Egypt had power, but no more than that. Ever since Moses had turned the river to blood, the magicians and surely Pharaoh had been troubled. This was their territory. This was the domain of their gods, that puny god of the Israelites whom Moses had met out in the deserts. He should not have had power over the Nile. And while Pharaoh put on a show of defiance and self-assurance, the magicians worried. This god of Israel was more powerful than they thought. I think we forget. I think we forget that the world was a very different place before Jesus was raised from the dead on that first Easter morning. It was different before the gospel went out like a shockwave across the world. Whatever they were, demons or something else, the gods of the pagans, or at least some of them, were real. Jesus and the gospel stripped them of their power. And everybody noticed it. The Greek philosopher Plutarch wrote a whole treatise trying to explain why the gods of the Greeks suddenly went silent in the first century. Their oracles ceased to speak anymore. Athanasius wrote about the same phenomenon in his treatise on the incarnation of the word of God. But of course, Athanasius knew the answer. It was Jesus. The power of the devil to deceive the nations was broken for good, and his kingdom was taken from him. The true light had come into the world, and the darkness was driven away, and the world has never been the same since. Over a thousand years before, Pharaoh and his magicians got a foretaste of what was to come in Jesus. That day, as they struck the dust with their stabs over and over again in frustration, trying to call forth gnats as Moses had, but I think knowing all along that they had met their match. That day, those Egyptian magicians were forced to acknowledge the greatness of the God of Israel. This is the finger of God, they said to Pharaoh. This is no trick. This is real. And this God has more power than we do, than you do, than our gods even have. They warned Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and it would take seven more plagues, each showing the power of the Lord over the earth, and most importantly, over Pharaoh and his gods. It would take seven more plagues before Pharaoh was finally broken. And even then, after letting the Hebrews go, he changed his mind and sent his army after them. And then in another display of his might, the Lord parted the sea to deliver his people and then to drown Pharaoh's army. But rather than acknowledge the Lord and give him glory, the proud Egyptians simply wrote those events out of their history. The gods of Egypt survived. They survived conquest by the Greeks, and they survived conquest by the Romans. But then Jesus rose from the grave and robbed their master of his power and his kingdom. Jesus bound him and cast him into a pit. And finally, the gospel, tradition says it went to Egypt with St. Mark in the lead, the gospel marched into Egypt where no one worships Isis or Osiris or any of those gods anymore. But in Egypt, Christians continue to gather each Sunday to praise Jesus 
and to give glory to the God of Israel. To quote those ancient pagan magicians, this is the finger of God. Now, think about our gospel today and imagine being the descendant of those Hebrews who saw their God in all his glory defeat Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. Imagine being the descendants of those people who passed through the waters of the Red Sea with unmoistened foot as we sing. Imagine being the descendants of the people who met the Lord in the cloud and lightning on Mount Sinai and who had followed the Lord into the promised land as he then defeated the gods of Canaan just as he had the gods of Egypt. Imagine being the descendant of those people being raised on those stories, your identity integrally tied up in the narrative of the Exodus in which you took part every year at Passover. Imagine then being unable or or obstinately unwilling to recognize the God of Israel at work again over the powers of evil. I mean, that should have been unthinkable, you would think. But that's exactly what we read in the gospel today from Luke 11. Here's what Luke writes again in verses 14 to 16. He says, now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. I mean, imagine acting just like the Egyptians when your God is at work. Lots of people saw the God of their fathers, the God of the Passover and the God of the Exodus. They saw him at work in and through Jesus, and they gave him glory, and they believed. A lot of them believed, even though so many things about Jesus didn't make sense to them or or didn't meet the expectations that people had for the Messiah. What they did know was that in the Messiah, the Lord would visit his people and would set the world to rights. In a world broken by sin, he would set things right. And that's just what Jesus was doing. Now, they thought the Messiah would probably come in a chariot like King David. Some people thought he would lead a violent revolution. Most people thought he would overthrow the Romans and set up his throne in Jerusalem to rule the nations. And they were kind of confused because Jesus, at least up to this point, he hadn't lived up to that. But Jesus was causing the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak. He was casting out devils. He was preaching good news to the poor. All the things the prophet had said the Messiah would do. He was showing in these things what the world set right to rights looks like. And so they believed, despite those other questions. But not everybody. Some of them were so dead set on their preconceived ideas about the Messiah that they just couldn't see the obvious or couldn't believe the obvious. Luke says some of them demanded signs, as if what Jesus was doing wasn't enough. And then there were others that would rather blaspheme the work of the Lord than admit they might be wrong about the, the Messiah. They dismiss him with those words. He casts out demons by Beelzebub. He's in cahoots with the devils. Beelzebub was at least originally a pagan Philistine god. Became associated with the devil in Jewish thought. 
So here's Jesus in the synagogue every Sabbath, performing signs just as the prophets had said, and he's giving all the credit and glory to the God of Israel, but now he casts out demons, and these guys accuse him of basically witchcraft. Back in chapter 12 of Luke, Jesus referred to this kind of thing as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and his point was that it put a person in very dangerous territory. The Messiah was the Lord's provision for the salvation of his people from the coming judgment. The Messiah was his only provision. So to attribute his power and his works to devils, well, that's pretty much the ultimate statement of disbelief, the ultimate rejection. So it's not that people who made this foolish accusation couldn't change their minds in the future and believe, but Jesus warns them, because such obstinate unbelief, such unbelief that insists on such stupid and outlandish explanations for what Jesus was doing, such blasphemy has at its root a heart that has been hardened against the Lord, a heart his people had seen before in Pharaoh. And we all know how that went for Pharaoh. No matter what great things the Lord did, Pharaoh's heart was unmoved. When the day of the Lord came to Israel, those people, even though they thought they were the faithful ones defending the Lord and his people from false messiahs, they would be swept up in the judgment and wind up like the Egyptians had. It's a reminder to us, brothers and sisters, to be cautious not to fall into similar traps. A few weeks ago, the internet was abuzz, to put it mildly, about an ad, a Christian ad that had shown during the Super Bowl. And it showed, it talked about Jesus washing feet, and it showed Christians in various situations washing people's feet. And it ended up, I guess, backfiring. They could have done better with the ad. They made some mistakes, I think. But the ad, instead of being an evangelistic thing, seemed to be more of a Rorschach test for Christians. And you could tell what side of the political aisle people lined up on and what they saw in this ad. People were condemning it because they saw their political opponents in it. And it kind of highlights the need for us, I think, to be more circumspect about our accusations against others. Jesus himself warned his disciples that at one point they saw someone casting out demons in his name, but this guy was not part of their apostolic franchise. And they tried to stop him, and Jesus warned them. He said, if he's acting in my name, and if he's not against us, then he's with us. Leave him alone. He's doing our work. The Spirit works in the church and in Christians usually in ordinary ways, but every once in a while in extraordinary ways. And, and if the Spirit could, could only work through churches and Christians that are perfect, the Spirit would never be able to work at all, would he? Because we've all got problems. Nobody's doctrine is perfect. None of us is as holy as we ought to be. When God moves through his church, it will always be through imperfect people and imperfect movements. 
Even as his spirit breathes new life into his people, they remain, we remain, imperfect Christians in imperfect churches. So if we see something happening and it's promoting heresy or it's promoting unholiness, if there's false prophecy involved or if it directs people away from God's word or away from Jesus, if it directs people away from from the Jesus we know in Scripture, then we can know that this is not a move of God. But when a movement, however imperfect, points people to Jesus and to the Word, and it causes people to pursue holiness and makes them better stewards of God's grace and of the gospel, brothers and sisters, we need to give it the benefit of the doubt. We need to praise God for it and pray that it will bring reformation. Back to Luke. Knowing how silly this accusation of witchcraft is, Jesus responds in verses 17 to 23. He says, But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, there's that finger of God phrase again that we saw all the way back in Exodus. If that's how I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So these guys are so opposed to Jesus that they haven't even thought through their accusations. And why would the Satan be shooting his own forces in the back? In Jesus, the battle with evil was coming to its climax, and the devil knew it. In fact, he was already losing. As Jesus says, like someone breaking into a strong man's house and tying him up and stealing his stuff, Jesus had already broken into the devil's house and robbed him of his power. He was preparing to take back his kingdom, and he was showing everybody by bossing around the Satan's minions. And Satan was powerless to do anything about it. And Jesus also says, you've got exorcists among your own people. You don't question or accuse them of being in cahoots with the devil. Why would you accuse me? And then Jesus makes a very deliberate point of recalling the Exodus and the magicians of Pharaoh with that statement. When he says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. They knew the Old Testament stories. They knew their own story. So they could not have missed the illusion. So much of what Jesus was doing, and before him what John the Baptist had done, so much of that pointed the people back to the events of the Exodus, and and Jesus and John did this to make the point that the Lord was on the verge of acting again to deliver his people. A new Exodus was about to happen. And so this bit about the finger of God, it's a rebuke. Jesus is reminding them that even Pharaoh's magicians were able to recognize the God of Israel at work, and their knees quaked in fear to think of what was to come. 
if pagan magicians could recognize the Lord at work, shouldn't the Lord's own people be able to recognize him all the easier? What does it say about the state of Israel when the Messiah comes and is so obviously doing all the things the prophets had said he would, but his own people reject him and even dismiss his power as if it's demonic? And that's what the next few verses are getting at. In verses 24 to 26, Jesus goes on and he says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and they dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. It's kind of an odd passage at face value. It is not a method or a theology of exorcism. It's often been taken that way, but that's not what what, what it is. It's Jesus' commentary on the state of Israel, and it's a rebuke of his people. For a thousand years, they had known known reform movement after reform movement. In the days of the judges, the people would stray from the Lord. He would allow someone to oppress them, and then they would repent and cry out to him, and he would deliver them over and over and over. Repeatedly, kings had tried to reform the nation. And in more recent years, they had known reforms and times of national repentance. The days of Ezra, the days of the Maccabees. I mean, this, this is what the Pharisees were all about. Another reform movement trying to get the Lord's people back to being faithful to Torah, to God. And all of these movements for reform were good but none of them ever solved the real problem. Jesus compares Israel to a man with a demon. The demon is cast out. It goes wandering for a while because it's got no home. It finds nowhere to rest. So eventually it returns to the man. And while the demon's been gone, someone's cleaned the house. So the demon says, this looks pretty inviting. And he goes and gets a bunch of his friends, and they return to the man, and now he's worse off than before. And just so with Israel. The prophets put it in terms of the need for a heart transplant. Israel needed her heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh. She needed the law written on her heart by the Spirit because the law written on stone tablets was never enough. She needed love for God inscribed on her heart. She needed to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And here, in light of the accusations being made against him, Jesus puts it in terms of demonic possession. But however it's made, the point is that Israel desperately needed a work of the Lord in her midst if anything were to truly change for good. And here's Jesus doing just that, and they're chalking up his power to the devil. So this is a statement of grief over the state of his people, and it's a call call to repentance and faith, and it's a warning against the judgment that was to come. But then there's a woman, and she speaks up from the crowd, and she highlights the discouraging fact that even the people who believed, even the people who saw the Lord at work in Jesus and were excited about it, 
even many of them didn't really get it. Even they needed a work of God done in them. Verses 27 and 28. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. She'd been rooting for Jesus from the beginning and and that gotcha with the people who accused him of being in cahoots with, with Beelzebub. She's just thinking, wow, Jesus is amazing. I mean, Jesus knew his Bible. That, that bit about comparing these guys to Pharaoh's magicians, that, that was genius. What a rebuke. And he was smart, and he was witty, and, and he could do miracles. I mean, maybe she had a son who had turned out to be kind of a disappointment. And so she cries out, what a boy. Your mama is truly blessed to have you for a son. And I mean, it was true. Gabriel had announced to Mary, blessed are you among women. But that's not the point. The Egyptian magicians recognized the power of God at work in Moses, and yet they still stood with Pharaoh. And this woman and so many others, they went a step further. They saw God at work in Jesus, and they praised him for what they saw. But brothers and sisters, it's not enough to see God at work and clap your hands and say, oh, isn't this great? Isn't this wonderful and exciting? Or or even to clap your hands and say, praise the Lord. Remember when people came to Jesus and said, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And he took the occasion to make a vital point about the gospel. He said, no, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. My mother and brothers are are you right here. In other words, the kingdom is not made up of those who just praise the Messiah. The kingdom is made up of those who give up everything to follow him in faith. The way to the kingdom is obedience, to, to drop everything, to set aside our own agendas and false ideas of the Messiah and the kingdom, and simply to follow Jesus. So think on that as you come to the Lord's table this morning. Here we recall what the Lord has done for us, what he's done for the whole world, and how he has done it in Jesus. And here at the table, we not only recall, but we participate ourselves in that great exodus in which Jesus has led us out of our bondage to sin and death. Through the water of baptism, and into the kingdom and into the spirit. You and I have seen the finger of God at work through the Messiah. Now respond in faith, not just as enthusiastic spectators, but by truly following Jesus in faith, in repentance as we set aside every distraction and every idol, and walk with him in obedience. We need to be a people immersed in his word. We need to be a people who stick close to our Lord. We need to be a holy people, to be light in the darkness, standing firm amidst the storm, and knowing that Jesus has already won the victory. Let's pray.
Almighty God, consider the heartfelt desires of your servants, we pray, and stretch out the right hand of your majesty to defend us against all our enemies. Purify our disordered affections so that we may behold your eternal glory and walk in obedience to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.